1 Timothy chapter 6. We're only looking at two verses this morning. Um, We've seen so far in this letter here that um, there were all kinds of issues in the church at Ephesus. There were false teachers, there was infighting between some of the men, the women were not dressing or behaving appropriately. Um, church leadership apparently was, was a bit of a mess, kind of with the roles being reversed between men and women and the exercise of authority, etc. Um, maybe even an issue with elders and, and deacons and who could qualify to serve in those roles because Paul had to provide some instruction there. We had um, some instructions given to widows, which means apparently there was some confusion over what the responsibilities were for caring for widows. And so, much like many churches, there were issues at Ephesus. And primarily, as you look at this letter, one of the things we've learned is that there are probably two primary purposes or themes um, reasons why Paul wrote the letter, but also themes within the letter, one of which was to deal with the false teaching, which was a huge problem. But the second was so that people might understand and know how to conduct themselves in the household of God, Paul says. Which means that as Christians, there's a certain expectation that we behave in a certain way. And that's throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so Paul had provided instructions to Timothy to help the believers at Ephesus know how to conduct themselves and he specifically addresses certain matters and certain issues that were of concern at that particular church. Some of those things may apply directly to us and then there are some others that don't necessarily apply directly to other churches or maybe even to us. But nonetheless, there's principles involved. And so really when we look at the passage this morning, this is one of those difficult passages where it doesn't apply directly to us But it does apply to us because there are principles behind it. And so we're going to look at some of those today. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're in the first two verses. And Paul is going to address the behavior of slaves to their masters. And so the reason I say that this doesn't directly apply to us is because I don't know of anyone in this room this morning that is a slave that has a master. Now you may disagree with that. But, in a technical sense, none of us in here are really slaves of another individual. And so, it doesn't apply directly to us. However, there are principles behind what Paul instructs here that you'll find as we go through this certainly do apply to us. And so we're going to do that today. This is one of those passages where you have to work a little harder to figure out what's the principle behind it. It's a lot easier when the text says, do this, and you go, yep, I'll do that. It's another when it's like, well, hmm, that doesn't really fit me directly, but what's the principle behind it and how might I apply that? So we're going to do that this morning. In the first verse, Paul provides an overarching or a general principle of how slaves were to respond to their masters. In the second verse, verse 2, he applies that, or he talks about an additional principle and how that applies to slaves specifically who have Christian masters. And so the first verse appears to apply more to probably how to approach or how to deal with unsaved masters, and the second, how to approach and address those who are saved. Now before we dive into this, we're going to have to, I believe, talk about slavery in the first century church because it's going to set the context for us. And if we understand what Paul was addressing and dealing with, I think it will help us to make application today. 
oftentimes I believe there are, there's a, a misunderstanding when we just simply read um, some of your translations may say bond slave some of them may say slave but there's some misunderstanding even within Christian churches as to exactly what it meant to be a slave in first century uh, Greco-Roman world and so we're going to address that but let's just read the verses to start with before we make our, make our way into this Paul says in chapter 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and 2 or I'm chapters, chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not disrespect or must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. But they must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So let's talk about this. Slavery in the Roman Empire during this first century was not, and this is important, was not the equivalent of slavery here in the United States that we saw years ago. Okay? They're really two very different things. When we think of slavery, we immediately think of our own experience in American history, which was basically going to places in the 17th and 18th century, going to places like Africa and trafficking slaves, bringing them here to the United States or even to parts of Europe, forcing them to pick cotton or to pick tobacco in farms down in the south primarily, under wicked conditions, no rights of any kind, yanked out of their families and their homes. That's what we think of oftentimes when we think of slavery. However, slavery in the Roman Empire was very, very different. Prior to the first century, about 90% of those who lived in the Greco-Roman world were slaves. Only, only about 10% were considered free. By the time we get to the first century, the time of Jesus, or even a little bit later with Paul and the early church, about 60% of the population were considered Slaves, And part of that is because their idea and their understanding of slavery had changed to some degree over that time. Now, there were many different kinds of slavery in the first century. Some were slaves because they had been taken captive in war. That was something that was permitted back then. Even in the Old Testament, they were allowed to, when they conquered their enemies, to enslave their enemies. In part, that was to prevent them from uprising if they were to conquer an enemy. You either put the enemy to death or you enslave them and in many respects prevent them from becoming your enemy from within. And so one form of slavery was to basically taking somebody captive in war. That was, I'll say, one of the smaller ones, if you will. Others were enslaved to pay off debt. If you were an individual who had debt that you could not pay, you could be enslaved. We've heard terms like debtor's prison, very similar. But some sold themselves into slavery so that they might pay off a debt that they had owed. They would have a benefactor. He would lend that individual money for whatever purpose it was. And one of the ways they would pay that off is they would indenture themselves. We've heard the phrase indentured servant. They would indenture themselves to an individual and that would make them a slave. That represented um, probably the larger portion of this. That's where oftentimes in your Bible you'll see the phrase bond servant. And that was to sort of distinguish between our idea of slavery and what was really, in many respects, a way of indenturing yourself to somebody else. Now, masters did have complete control over their slaves, the rights of their slaves. Um, They were generally, though, treated with dignity and respect um, because the Roman economy was built on slavery. And so they learned something 
which was they had to take care of their slaves, take care of those indentured servants, but also those who had simply been enslaved. They had to care for them because it was important to their economy. To misuse or to abuse them did not serve their purpose. And so most of the time, slaves were treated with dignity and respect. Not something we've seen here in the United States with slavery in our past. I think any one of us that understands what happened um, would understand that that while there may have been good masters, um, most of the time slaves were not treated with dignity and respect in our history. Slaves were often educated. They were generally paid a wage on top of being given provisions. Um, In fact, many of them um, actually had better than what you might refer to as contract day laborers. Oftentimes, those who, were, those who found it the most difficult to survive in Roman culture were what we call day laborers. They were barely paid enough to pay their rent and to put food on the table and to take, take care of their families. Slaves oftentimes had it better than that because they lived in their masters' homes. They were provided for by their masters and on top of that were oftentimes paid wages. Um, they were allowed to marry they generally didn't lose rights, so they had many of the same rights that individuals did who were free, including the ability to have family and, and to have kids. They were given clothing and shelter. And so when you were to compare a normal day laborer to a slave, oftentimes it was better to be a slave than it was to be just a regular day laborer out there in terms of just being able to care for yourself. A famous Roman lawyer named Cicero wrote that most slaves were set free by the time they were 30, Um, There's also evidence to suggest that oftentimes when those um, slaves were set free, whether it was because the debt had been paid off or whether it was because um, they had reached the age of 30 and Roman law provided for them to be released at that age, oftentimes many of them chose to continue working for their masters. That tells us a little bit about what they actually faced. Now, with all of this said, I'm not in any way trying to say that slavery was a good thing wasn't promoting, I'm not promoting slavery here, just trying to set us a context to understand what we're looking at. Now with all of that said, that does not mean there weren't wicked masters, and it does not mean that slavery was a good thing. There were many who suffered under masters who were not very good. They were not gentle, they were not kind, they were abusive. And so when we get to our passage this morning, one of the things we want to make sure is that we're not portraying slavery with this rosy picture that it was all just hunky-dory to be a slave, but being careful in that not all slaves were abused. Many of them liked working for and providing for their families, being taken care of underneath this slave-slash-indentured-servant role. But many of them were suffering. And so Paul, when he wrote this passage here, we're going to see that as we sort of dissect it. Let's go back to verse 1 again. It says, All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own master as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. The first thing that Paul tells us here is that slaves were to honor their masters, so as not to slander the gospel, to not disparage the name of God or doctrine. Notice he says, all who are under the yoke as slaves. It's important to make a little translational, a translational note here. 
If you have an NIV version of the Bible, it probably says, I believe it says something like, um, all who are under the yoke as slaves. Anybody got an NIV here? Is that what it says? There, I think it believe I believe it says that that are under look. Yeah, as slaves, and what that implies is that being a slave was always under the yoke. Now, that idea of under a yoke is you know the yoke is what was put on the necks of animals to pull and and uh, to work. Most translations translate this in a more literal sense, which is all who are under the yoke of slavery. And here's the reason why that's different. Paul was not trying to indicate that slavery in general was always a yoke, meaning a burden to be under in that culture and society. What he is addressing here are those who were suffering under a yoke of slavery. Does that make sense? How I'm clarifying that? In other words, he's talking to a very specific group of people, those who were genuinely struggling under that system. Because again, not all were. For some, it was very good. But for many, it was not very good. And so Paul is specifically addressing them. And so it is different to say those who are suffering under the yoke of slavery versus those who are really suffering under a yoke of slavery. It's very different. And so Paul is addressing those who genuinely were struggling with that system. As I mentioned before, this verse 1, because he addresses in verse 2 those who are serving Christian masters, it appears that in this first verse, he's referring to those who are suffering under those who are unsaved. And as we should expect, maybe this isn't always the case, unsaved masters likely were going to be more difficult to serve under than those who were saved. You would expect that. You know, I was talking to somebody not too long ago about George Washington. You know, lately it's been fashionable to slam George Washington and, and um, Thomas Jefferson and others as being these horrific slave owners, and so we all want to change our history. And yet, one of the things that we understand when you study George Washington is that many, he was very good to his slaves. Now, that was under a bad system of slavery. But yet, he was very good to his slaves, and most of your, your, your good historical sources will describe how he was good to his slaves. Whether he was saved or not, some say that he was a deist, some say that he might have been a Christian. Regardless, he was, he was good to his slaves. Again, that doesn't justify slavery in any form or fashion. But as you can see, those who might not be such good people may not have been good to their slaves. And so, not all slaves had it like it should have been, I guess I'll say. Meaning, if they had to be indentured, if they did have to pay off debt, if they had put themselves under the burden of somebody because of whatever they had borrowed, um, some of them may have regretted that. They were under the burden, a yoke. So they did suffer. Not all had a good or kind master. And Paul likely had them in mind. Now, in such cases, what does Paul say that they're supposed to do? How are they supposed to treat such masters? Well, he says that they're to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Isn't that a difficult statement? We've seen this phrase, honor, before multiple times here. Honoring widows, um, honoring elders who serve well. We've seen how it sometimes can refer to financial provision, other times just respect. In this particular instance here, it's likely referring to respect. And you notice that he says here that they're supposed to regard them worthy of all respect. Another way to translate that is with the utmost of respect. That's a hard statement for us. 
If you've got an abusive master, somebody who's not good to you, and yet you're told that you're supposed to treat them with the utmost of respect, that's anybody else struggle with that? That's a that's a difficult thing. They don't deserve my respect. But yet, that's what Paul tells them here. Now what's interesting about this is every time Paul addresses this subject, every time the Bible addresses this subject, there's no qualifications. Meaning, well, only give those really good masters respect. There's never any qualification like that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. The Bible says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Did you catch that? He doesn't say, Slaves, you know, be obedient to those really good masters. He simply says, Be obedient to those who are your masters in the flesh. Notice he says, To do it with fear and trembling. It's very similar to respect or honor that we've seen in 1 Timothy. Notice he also says, in sincerity of heart, which means don't just offer lip service, but do it from the heart. And then he says, as to Christ. Meaning, the way that we ought to honor our earthly masters, Paul says to Timothy, or to um, the Ephesians here, is in the same way you would honor Christ. Do it as to Christ. That's a pretty tall order, is it not? Anybody else struggle with that? That's, that's a tall order, but that's what the Bible says. Turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves in all things, not in some, but in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not with external service. That's parallel to do it with sincerity from the heart. Not with external service as to those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. Fearing who? Fearing the Lord. Why should they obey all things when it comes to their masters? Out of their fear for the Lord. As to Christ. Do it from the heart with sincerity. Notice again, there's no qualification in this passage. He doesn't say, slaves, in all things obey those really good masters, those who are good to you. He simply says, those who are your masters. How about First Peter chapter 2? I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verse 9. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing. And in the context, that means be well-pleasing to their masters, not argumentative, not pilfering, meaning stealing from their masters, but showing all good faith so they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Again, no qualifications. Only do it to those who are deserving of it, but rather showing good faith. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 says, Servants, be submissive. And this is where the catch-all is for us. As I've stated in these previous three passages, Paul never once says, only do it to those who are good to you. Peter takes it an extra step further. If there's any question at all that the Bible intends that we would treat earthly masters, in this case slaves treating their masters appropriately, if there's any question, does that include those who aren't so good? Does that include those who are unsaved? 
Peter answers that directly. Servants, he says in 1 Peter 2.18, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but to those who are unreasonable. Anybody else struggling? Is that a tall order? This reflects a principle we see throughout the scriptures, folks. When it comes to authority, we're to honor and respect those who are in authority. Not because they deserve it, but because God calls us to do it. It isn't about them being worthy of it. It isn't about them deserving it. Children are expected to obey their parents. Wives are to honor and respect their husbands because of the position they hold, not necessarily because they deserve the honor or respect. In fact, Peter even addresses that. How, to handle, how a wife can handle a husband who dishonors the word. And Peter gives instructions for how she's to behave, partly in hopes that her behavior can win her husband to Christ. That's the principle. Believers are expected to respect and submit to elders. There are qualifications for elders. They are supposed to rule well. There are requirements on how they're supposed to rule. They don't always do it. But we're still expected to respect that position of elder within the church. doesn't mean we can't confront. We talked about that what, last week or the week before. But nonetheless, we are told to respect the authority that God has placed into the church. We're called to honor governing officials, and we all know <laughs> how difficult that is, right? I mean, there are wicked leaders, not just all over the world, but we've got some pretty wicked leaders here, folks. And it's getting worse. But the scriptures tell us. God has placed them there for a purpose, and we're expected to honor them. With no, There's no qualification there. We'll get to that in a minute, about what that means, but we can see here the same applies. So that's a tall order. We're told here that slaves are supposed to respect, give honor, utmost respect to their masters. That's what Paul had instructed Timothy to teach the slaves within his church. And he doesn't just leave it there. There's a reason for that. And that's the, one of the things I love about the scriptures. It doesn't just usually tell us, do something. It tells us why we're supposed to do it. And that's important here because Paul tells Timothy why this is so important. Notice he says that when you're under the yoke as slaves, when, you've, when you're serving a, a wicked master, somebody who's maybe not so good to you, he says here that you do that so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Notice the focus there. Paul's reason is that it's all about God. It's all about the gospel. It's all about God's name and reputation. If a slave were to disrespect his master, it would cause the name of God to be spoken against. The word that's used there is blasphemed. Think about this. Turn to first, or Second Samuel chapter 12. David is told something regarding his sin with Bathsheba. And it goes to the same principle that we're looking at here. I want you to listen to this. Just one verse, second. Samuel chapter 12, verse 14. You remember David had sinned. He had murdered Moriah, or he had murdered Uriah the Hittite, had, had adultery with his wife, Bathsheba. His sin is discovered by the Lord. He's confronted by Nathan the prophet. And look at what happens in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 14. However, because by this deed, David, 
You have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Catch that? David's sin wasn't just that he had sinned against Uriah by murder, not just that he had sinned against Bathsheba by taking her in adultery, not just that he had sinned against the Lord by breaking two of probably the most significant commandments in the Old Testament. The greatest sin, if you will, was that David caused the name of the Lord to be blasphemed. Ouch! Something very similar in the book of Isaiah where the Lord is looking at the Israelites and saying, because of you, the enemies of God blaspheme God. And so when Paul is talking to the slaves here, he's saying, look, it's important that you honor your masters. And again, we're looking at the context here of probably unsaved masters. That you honor them so that the name of God might not be spoken against or blasphemed. The second thing that Paul mentions there is the doctrine. So it's not just that he doesn't want to have the Lord's name blasphemed, but the doctrine. That's everything we hold dear as Christians. It's what we have written here in in this book. So he says, honor your masters so that our doctrine might not be spoken against. How many of you have heard, and I wouldn't say this is right by any stretch of the imagination, but how many of you have heard people say, well, why should I worship your God when you Christians do A, B, or C? How many of you have heard Christians referred to as hypocrites? That's the reality of it, folks. Our behavior oftentimes can cause the name of God and our doctrines, what we believe as Christians, to be blasphemed. Now, in all fairness, Jesus said they're going to hate us, which means even when we do right, sometimes they're still going to blaspheme God. But think about our behavior sometimes. can amplify that, especially when we're hypocrites. And so one of the concerns that Paul had here with slaves was that when they disrespected their masters in a culture and a society that expected them to honor their masters... Paul says it blasphemes God or causes them to blaspheme God's name and causes their doctrine to be looked down upon. Think about, you know, one of the major tenets of Christianity is our submission to God. Even Christ submitted himself to the Father. The example we saw through the whole entire book of Acts with the apostles was they submitted themselves for the sake of the gospel. Even Paul, remember the, the instance where Paul was before Agrippa where you know, he kind of made a snide comment and he got or he got struck and she made a snide comment and then they said you don't realize this is the high priest and what did Paul do? didn't realize that was Paul wrong necessarily in what he did? it's a wicked situation he was unjustly charged the high priest was abusing his authority but Paul in some way saw that my response to that at this time was inappropriate that's a hard pill to swallow why? Because he understood the Old Testament said that he shouldn't have said what he said because he was the high priest. Paul had an issue with him, could have confronted him in private. Any number of ways that might have been handled. But Paul himself recognized, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't have said what I said. We would all probably argue that, well, he was probably right in what he said. But maybe not the best time and place to say it. I don't know necessarily what he should have done but my point is that even Paul recognized that he had 
disrespected that position of high priest. So that's the first thing we see here, is that Paul was concerned about the name of God being blasphemed in Christian doctrine. In essence, the gospel being spoken against if the slaves did not treat their masters appropriately. Now he goes on, because now he's going to address, well, what about in the instance when they have saved masters? Look at verse 2 again. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. So here he sort of steps it up a notch. If you happen to have masters who are believers, he says, don't respect them. Serve them even more. Why? Because they're believers and they benefit from your service to them. So verse 1 appears to be on the unsaved masters. Verse 2 appears to be on saved masters. So they're supposed to serve them all the more. We've got a perfect example of this, by the way, in the scriptures. Anybody know what that perfect example is? Turn to the book of Philemon. Philemon was a Christian living in Coloss. One of his unsaved slaves, Onesimus, ran away. Somehow he made his way to Rome, met Paul somehow, was led to Christ, probably by Paul. It appears that he might have even been imprisoned alongside Paul. But because Paul, or because Onesimus was legally the property of Philemon, he was a bondservant apparently paying off debt. Because of that, Paul sent him back to Philemon with a letter. So let's go ahead and just look at this. Chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 10 through 21. Listen to what Paul says here. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, meaning you probably led him to Christ. It may have been that Onesimus was arrested because of being a runaway slave. We don't really know. But he somehow met Paul in prison and Paul led him to Christ. Who formerly was useless to you. Why? Because he'd run away. But now he's useful to both you and me. To Paul because he was ministering alongside Paul, helping Paul somehow in prison. But now he could go back to Philemon and be useful to Philemon. Remember, it was in many respects, I take care of your debt. You work for me, you provide a service to me, and I take care of your debt. That's useful to me, right? I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. In other words, Paul saying, I could have kept him here. And just said, ah, he's ministering to me on behalf of Philemon. But I can't do that. He's your property. I need to send him back to you. For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. A beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? If then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he, was, if he has wronged you in any way, that's probably the idea of theft. He ran away. He still owed Philemon. If he's wronged you in any way, or if he owes you anything, it's probably an allusion to, remember the other passage of Reverend says, don't pilfer from your masters? 
may have been a reference here that if he's taken anything from you, when he escaped, if he stole anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this to you with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self as well. Paul's like, well, I'll pay you back. Remember, you kind of owe me too, buddy. Right? Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. So what do what we learn from this? Paul essentially sends Onesimus back to Philemon to continue serving Philemon, fulfilling his obligation to Philemon. And I'm sure he had this discussion with Onesimus. You know what, Onesimus? This isn't right. You, you have a debt to Philemon. You owe it. You need to go back to him. However, now, Onesimus, you need to serve him as a brother, not just as a slave. Serve him as a brother. Serve him doubly hard. And Philemon, take him back as a brother. Don't just take him back as a slave. Take him back as a brother in Christ. Be good to him. And so we see these very principles here that Paul is teaching Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 reflected in the letter of Philemon. One of the things we see there, too, is that Paul respected the system that was in place. Now, elsewhere, he does say, hey, slaves, if you can get your freedom, work for your freedom. So Paul wasn't a fan of slavery. But he did respect the fact that it was a legal system there. And again, he's not supporting the abuse. Elsewhere, he commands masters to be good to their slaves. You remember in Ephesians both in Colossians as well, as he's instructing how slaves are to behave and masters to behave, he tells masters to treat their slaves with respect as Christ would expect. So he wasn't a fan. He wasn't in favor of slavery, but he did understand the system that they lived within. And he recognized the fact that within that system, when somebody was a slave to somebody else, their behavior could be looked upon in a way that would cause the gospel and our doctrine to be blasphemed if they did not respect those who they served. So what's our takeaway with all this? As I mentioned, there's, there's not a direct correlation. I don't know anybody in here who's a slave. So what's the principles? Whenever we find something like this, we have to dig for that. So that's what we have to do. One of the principles we have in our passage today is how we treat those in authority over us can positively or negatively impact our mission as Christians. It can negatively or positively affect the gospel. I think that's pretty clear. Think about the workplace. Oftentimes you see this passage related directly to employers and employees. There may not be a direct connection there, but certainly there's some practical application there. For those of us who report to managers, um, how does our behavior toward our boss or manager impact their understanding of God or their understanding of Christianity or their understanding of our doctrines or their understanding of the gospel. You think about that? I mean, we love to think, you know, hey, we've got a job to provide for our family. But is that really ultimately why you're there? I would argue no. We are in the world. Jesus left us in the world to be a witness to the world around us, which means really the first priority with our job, if we have a boss or we work in an environment where we're not necessarily our own boss, we have ultimately a responsibility to be witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we're there. 
It isn't just about God providing for us. We were le- God could have sucked us up with the giant hoover and taken us all away when we got saved, but he left us here instead to be witnesses. Peter wrote this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds... As they observe them, as they watch you, glorify God in the day of visitation. That's the purpose. Keeping our behavior excellent. Slaves, obey your masters, even those who aren't great to you. Why? Keep your behavior excellent so that they might ultimately glorify God in the day of visitation. It's about their salvation. It's about the gospel. It's about witnessing Jesus Christ. So the question I have is, Will our behavior inspire that? Or will it result in them blaspheming God as the Lord reminded David and the Israelites? Got a couple of examples for you. One I'm not very proud of. I've probably shared this story before. When I was working as a service writer, after I graduated from seminary, I kind of got a little smart. I had about $9,000 of college debt. No seminary debt because that was paid for. But I had about $9,000 of college debt that I knew after six months of graduating, the payments would kick back in and I'd be back to paying off for the next 10 years. I got to thinking. I was paying 100 bucks for my apartment that had slanted ceilings and I'd have to eat breakfast with my head to the side. I was living cheap, you know. And I thought, hmm, if I got a job. <laughs> I was pastoring a small church and I had a small job at a newspaper. Um, I think making four bucks an hour, five bucks an hour or something. I thought, if I just got a better job, a little better pay, and just kind of stayed living really skinny, I could probably pay off a good chunk of that debt, which would free me up for ministry. So I found this ad in the newspaper. You guys know what those are, want ads back in the day, you know? Yeah, it was a newspaper. For a car dealership as a service writer. And I thought, hey, I've got, I used to do all my own work on cars. You know, I don't do as much of that anymore. I'm not that smart anymore. Um, But I thought, I'm done stuff like that before it'd be perfect you know so I went over there and interviewed and the service manager hated me I mean he's just like you're a seminary guy they'll eat you alive back here you know these guys are just so filthy and disgusting and you're some seminary guy we don't want you here you know but the owner really wanted me and he's like I can't find guys that can work with people I don't want a mechanic I want somebody who can just work with people and I figure you probably can if you're going to be a pastor. So he wanted to hire me but his service manager didn't. Well, I didn't want anything part of it because of the experience I had with the service manager. It's a tall guy about that tall, broad shoulders. You know those pictures you see of cartoons where they make the waist like that skinny and the shoulders like this? That's, that was him. Buzz cut, the flat crew top. You know, nobody gets the flat ones anymore. You know, but it was the flat one. It had this big old nose. They called him Beaker. Called a beaker, you know, the cartoon or the, the, the Muppets character. And so I was just like, I can't work for this guy, you know. And so I just told the owner, I said, not interested. I went home. And I think they were offering like $15,000 a year is what they were willing to pay, which I thought that's much better than I'm making now. I could probably pay off some debt. Well, the owner called me a little bit later and said, I really, really got to have you. What's it going to take? And I'm like, I really don't want to do this. I told my you're manager doesn't want me there that's who I'd be working for and he goes I don't care what he wants I need you here you blah 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 blah. so he just says like what's it going to take you just name your price and I just threw out I'm like he was offering 15,000 I said 25,000 he said it's yours and I went what and I thought did the math in my head real fast I'm like I could pay off all my debt in like six months before my payments even start so that was my goal you know I was going to go there and I was going to work but it was miserable I was on my feet 10 hours a day on concrete no air conditioning 
out in the heat in polyester pants and shirt. You don't breathe with that, right? So this was a miserable time. And you're dealing with customers who are never happy to pay you to fix their vehicle. So I I hated it. And the tensions were always kind of high, you know. But I had a great opportunity. They called me Father Mike. That's what they called me. Father Mike! They called me the Seminoid Geek, you know. And they would tease me all the time. And some of those technicians would prod me all the time. Because they knew, you know. But... Over the course of time, God gave me, I was able to lead one guy to Christ, had a great opportunity with some other guys, you know. But it was always really hard with Beaker. Because he was, he was not nice. He wasn't nice to his employees. He wasn't nice to me, you know. And I remember one particular day. Um, it was a high stress day. We were all stressed out. And a customer came in and um, the technician screwed up. Replaced a part that didn't need to be replaced. But it was an expensive part. So when it came time to talk to the customer, there's no way I could bill the customer for that, but Beaker said, no, we're charging them. And I went, no, this is our screw-up. It was like 500 bucks. Back then, it was a lot of money, right? And he's just like, I don't care. We're going to charge them anyway. And I'm like, I can't charge a customer. For it. It was our, your technician screwed up. And so we're having this argument, right? And he's up in his cage, big glass cage. I'm down on the floor, you know. And um, we used to staple the car keys to the cardboard work order. And that's what I had in my hands. And I just remember losing it, completely losing it. And I took that, had the keys in my hand, and I literally threw it at him. And I swore. Not one of those, you know, light and friendly swear words, the big one. And I hadn't used that word probably since I was unsaved in high school. And everybody saw it. His technicians saw it. My coworkers saw it. And I stormed out. I went upstairs and I put my head down on the table and I went, oh my gosh, what did I just do? I remember that keys bounced off the glass, you know, and went across the floor. And I'm thinking, that's it, I'm going to lose my job. But immediately what I began to think of was, I've just destroyed my witness. I have been trying to share with him. I have been trying to share with the guys in the shop. My whole part, they called me Father Mike. And Father Mike just dropped the F-bomb in front of everybody. So I sat up there, I prayed for a little bit. I finally thought, you know what I've got to do? I've got to go down and I've got to talk to him. I've got to confess. So I did. Went down to his office, closed the door, and the way I approached it was, what I just did was I shamed my God, I shamed my Savior, but I disrespected you in front of all of your employees. The guy just looked at me with his eyes about this big around. And I'm like, so that was wrong on multiple levels. And I said, I don't care how much we disagree. I could have handled it very differently, but I don't have the right to disrespect you or disrespect my God. And I shared with him, I said, look, I wanted you guys to see Jesus. Plain and simple, I wanted you to see Jesus. And I didn't act like that today. And I left, walked out, went back down, did my little job. What was interesting is he approached me a short time later, said, yeah, I was wrong. I shouldn't have asked you to do that. Charge a customer like that. Next thing I know, he invited me to play on a softball team, coming down, would pull me up into his office to talk about his wife and a struggle he was having with his kid. The last sermon I preached at my church, he showed up with three other guys from the shop, sat in the front row of my small little country church. He had never been to church in his life. It was that moment of confessing that to him, I think, that made the difference. Now, I'm not proud of that. Thank God... He wrestled my heart when I went up to that room instead of me just puffing up with pride and saying, well, he was wrong and I was right. That's what we're talking about here. 
is our behavior can make or break somebody's view of God and our doctrine and the gospel. I could have handled it very differently. I shared a recent example of my current boss and how when that whole process started, it was not good. I didn't feel as though I was being treated properly. and I had to make some decisions about what's important here. How do I treat him in spite of not being treated appropriately? And God has done some amazing things with that and turned that whole thing around. Because that's the goal. And so it isn't about our rights. It isn't about our privileges. It isn't even really about whether we're being mistreated or not treated appropriately. We'd like to think it is. But it's really not about that. It's about what our behavior says about our relationship with Christ and what that communicates to the unsaved world around us. We already have it really hard because we're told they're going to hate us even when we're perfect. Even when we do the right thing, they're going to hate us. Which means we've got to work doubly hard at our behavior. And sometimes that means we're going to have to give up certain rights or privileges. That's not something we Americans like to do. Now, with that said, it doesn't mean we roll over. Paul didn't roll over. Paul took advantages of his rights as being a Roman citizen, did he not? So it's not roll over and play dead, be a doormat, but we always have to look at our behavior and ask, is my behavior going to advance the gospel or not? Is it going to help them understand who God is or is it not? Sometimes standing our ground and speaking up about something We'll speak to the righteousness and the goodness and the justice of God. And they may hate us for it. And that's okay because we're communicating something accurate about the Lord. But there are times where submission is a better example. Suffering might be a better example. You know, going through all this COVID stuff, um, there were certain things that we were expected to do. Violated our rights in many respects. I don't agree with any of that. But there are times where I just made the decision, I'm just going to do it. Because I don't want them to reflect negatively on me as a Christian. Yeah, I can look at them and say, look, I don't agree with doing this, but I'm going to do it for your sake or your benefit. In my case, I think that was the right thing to do. Okay? What about how we respond to civil authority? I won't have you turn there, but Romans chapter 13 makes it really clear that God places civil authority over us. And they're not always good. But you know, we're expected to give them honor because God uses that in our culture and society. And so when it comes to civil authorities, sometimes we do just just submit to that, even though we may not necessarily agree, because again, there's a bigger picture. What about children when it comes to parents? You know? um, A child that learns to submit to the authority of their parents, even when they disagree, communicates something about their relationship with Christ. Oftentimes, watching young kids and how they respect their parents and the impact that might have on their peers. They don't realize that sometimes, what great witness that can be. And so, I think our takeaway, if we have one big takeaway from this, is that there's always the bigger picture, which is the gospel. That's why we're here. And so, when it comes to slaves and masters, Paul's point wasn't to support slavery. We know that the Bible did not support slavery. What it did was it recognized that slavery existed in cultures, and it gave rules for how to work within that. Slaves to masters, masters to slaves. We have to remember that one of the greatest drivers of the abolitionist movement was Christians and the scriptures. So there is in no way support for that system within the scriptures, but yet 
there's instructions on how to live within a system like that. And that's the way we exist today. We are not here to correct all the wrongs of society. We're not here to redeem culture or society. We're not here to change the world and make it a better place for Jesus to finally go, oh, now it's good enough for me to come back. Do your jobs, Christians. Change the world. That's not what we're called to. We are called to lead individuals to Jesus Christ into a salvation relationship with him. And in order to do that, sometimes we have to live in an unjust system and just behave appropriately within that unjust system. Does that make sense? Is that a hard pill for us to swallow sometimes? Because we live in a culture and society where it's all about us and all about our rights and nobody better darn well disrespect me or mistreat me. And sometimes we just have to swallow that pride. Say, I'm going to suffer like Jesus because I want my witness to be one of respect and authority because I serve Jesus Christ. And so I submit just as I would to Jesus. And again, that doesn't mean we roll over. You know, if somebody breaks into my house, I'm not going to get down on my knees and say, oh, please take everything. I'll defend my house. I'll defend my family. Okay? So it's not about rolling over and playing dead. It's just learning to figure out what should my behavior be like that best represents the gospel, Jesus Christ, and what we believe as Christians. Amen?